Week three, good news at last. Good news at last. One of my buddies, he keeps saying, it's not just good news at last, it's good news that lasts. And uh, I totally agree. I don't mind what you call this series. Is it good news at last? Is it good news that lasts? It doesn't matter. Call it what you will. The point is, is we're looking through the book of Mark. We're starting in Mark chapter 1. Uh, we saw in the first line of Mark chapter 1, this is the, the story of the Messiah, Christ, the Son of God. And for the first eight chapters, Mark writes this letter, probably alongside Peter, who's dictating his experiences of what it was like to be part of and inside of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And, 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 and Mark writes this, this eyewitness account of Jesus' life and his ministry. And, and Mark's main tr- uh, effort that he's making as he writes this is he's trying to help the reader to understand that Jesus is a suffering servant king. He's got this massive paradoxical tension between this king who's on the throne, he's all authoritative, he's the heaven and earth's true king, and yet he's also a suffering servant. And, and that's the kind of leader you, you, you really can't make up. We, we don't meet any of those, really. Mandela's probably our closest expression, right? A man who was willing to lay down his life for the good of others, to, to suffer for the good of others. This is a magnificent picture of sacrificial servant leadership. Jesus is the quintessential ideal leader. He's the leader all of us wish we had. He's filled with authority, filled with strength, filled with creative power that he created the whole world. And yet in his love and his mercy, he comes as a servant to love us and to to move in on our world. And we've seen over the last 13 uh, verses, which is not a lot, but it's really jam-packed. We've done two weeks and we've covered 13 verses. We saw, first of all, that Jesus was baptized. He's baptized. First, John comes onto the scene and he says, Jesus is coming. He's the precursor. And he says, watch out, this man's coming. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. That's how incredible he is. He is so full of grace. He is so full of love. He is the Holy One from heaven. And then Jesus comes to John and he says, you must baptize me. And John baptizes him in the water, just like Chris and Natalie today are going to get baptized in the water. Except Jesus' baptism was unlike any other baptism in that the Spirit of God comes down upon Jesus. And out of the heavens, these words come, this is my son whom I love, with him I'm well pleased. Wow. Those words were symbolic of the Holy Spirit coming upon Jesus, the anointing of a king. That was what was happening. When the Spirit of God comes upon Jesus, it is the anointing of this king. He would only get his crown three years later. Not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. And it would symbolize that he's the, he's the king, but he's the servant king. He's the sacrificial king. He's the one that's expected in Isaiah 53 that speaks of this one who would be marred beyond recognition, but would also, by his stripes, would heal our lives because of the brutal treatment that he received, would become our restoration and our transformation. This is all happening. It's unfolding in this passage. Then we see Jesus, after his baptism, he goes out into the wilderness. He's tempted, just like us. Oh my gosh, you know that you have a God in heaven who's been tempted, just like you and I? He knows what it feels like. This is, you couldn't make this stuff up. We've got a God who really gets it. And he came out of the wilderness and he had beaten temptation. Wow. And now he begins his ministry. 
the heaven and earth true king, has been anointed, and he moves into the world, and he starts to recruit a crew of people. He starts to begin this ministry of bringing this kingdom. If he's the king, he's going to start to reveal what is this kingdom actually like? How does it work? And we start to realize it's a bit of an upside-down kingdom. It's not like any kingdom we're used to. It's not like a, the Chinese kingdom or the, the American kingdom or the Russian kingdom, these superpowers who, who seem to be wanting increasing power and increasing resources. It, it flips kingdom dynamics totally on its head. We're going to start to realize that Jesus is calling some people into his kingdom to become kingdom partners, to become heirs of this kingdom, to start to help the world to understand who is this king and what is he like. And so this is where we pick up in chapter 1 and verse 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee, proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. That word good news in Greek was the word euangelion. It, it spoke of this message that had come. What would usually happen in, in those Roman times was that the king would be staying in his royal sort of palace, and, and you'd be in the royal city, and a messenger would come back, and he would herald the news that out on the frontiers, the battle had been won, and he would come and he would say, we've won, we've won, and the king would go, he would know that he has taken new territory. It was good news. Now Jesus is, in a sense, the one who's bringing his good news. He is the king of the kingdom, and he begins to herald this good news. There is a new king, and he's saying that the kingdom is at hand. It's within arm's reach. It's right here. Imagine that. I, I can't quite picture it. Those of you that have been to Israel, maybe you know what it feels like to walk the shores of Galilee and to have a man who comes and says, the kingdom is at hand. And they were hearing these words. The king of the kingdom is proclaiming that something in the cosmic reality of the world is totally shifting because the king of the kingdom has come into his creation and he's proclaiming a whole new way. A whole new way of existing and living and being. And it's happening right now. It's in arm's reach. This is a magnificent thought. This is an amazing reality. The king of the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God is near. Okay, let's get interactive. You, you're staring at me too blankly. It's too much information. Go like this. Bump the person next to you. Both hands, Rory, not just one. Come on. Now go like this. It's okay if your elbows are bumping. You can do this if you have to. Here's the present evil age. Your left hand, my, my left hand, that's the present evil age. Here's the kingdom to come, okay? The kingdom to come in the present evil age. Most people in, in ancient uh, biblical times expected that the present evil age would end and there'd be a seamless transition to the, the, the new age, the age to come. Keep your hands up. Come on, guys. No, she, bad students. But here's what's happening. Jesus says the kingdom has come. And what really is happening is this. Slide your hands over each other. Do that. There is an overlap of the ages. You see, the kingdom of God has come. Jesus has arrived, but we're still in the present evil age. There is an overlap. This evil age will come to an end, and the, the age to come will eventually be the only age, but there is an overlap of the ages. We live in the now and the not yet. You can put your hands down. 
We live in an overlap of the ages. And Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand. And it's true. He has come and the kingdom has come. But we still live in a very complex, broken, fallen world. We still worry about a whole bunch of stuff that might happen to us. There is so much complexity in the world and it really makes our lives super stressful. You wake up and you wonder, is the good stuff going to happen or is the bad stuff going to happen? Oh, we live in the overlap of the ages and we aren't in control of all of that. And Jesus says there's good news. You know the, the difference between good news and good advice? Good advice, you, you hear it and you, you try to enact it. Good news is different. Good news, you believe. You just believe good news. Either it's true or it's not. Maybe you're new to faith. You're, you're looking in at this stuff. Hey, I would encourage you to really interrogate this. Kick the tires on this stuff. Did Jesus really live? Did he really die? What do historians say? The answer is no one really with, with any worthwhile uh, historical uh, sort of pedigree would say Jesus never lived. No one would even say he never died. Most historians ask the question, how in the world did he do what he did after he died if he didn't rise from the dead? How did that stuff happen? It's inexplicable that such power would come over such ordinary human beings that the known world would be transformed by this so-called resurrected Savior. Unless maybe he did. Unless maybe he did and the kingdom has come. And the king of this new kingdom is at work in the world. And that we do well to begin to follow him. Which is where Jesus moves to. He starts walking and he, he says the kingdom of God has come. And he starts to call some disciples. And he calls them in this amazing grace. Maybe some of us missed Terry Virgo last week. What are the kind of people Jesus calls into his kingdom? Who's he looking for? Is he calling for CVs? You know, put out your CV. Let me know what you're like. Let's see if you're appropriate. Let's see if you went to the right high school. You went to the right, uh, you come from the right family. He's not interested in that stuff. He he has no interest. You're going to see that he comes to people and he calls them by sheer grace. Listen to this. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, we're in verse 16, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, said Jesus, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they'd gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, And his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Let me mention grace again. Because this is such an important part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. These guys, they they leave their dad. Man, I got kids. I don't want to see my children leave me. But it's quite a moment, right? They left their dad and their fishing business, which was their identity. They were definitely going to take over the business. They were going to get the boats, and they were going to raise their children up to be fishermen. And they were going to be a, a successful fishing business. And they would be known for as the family with the fishing business, who'd done well for themselves and stayed together. And somehow in this, there is this ability to leave that identity, that security, and go towards Jesus. Now, remember, this is probably not the first time they've met Jesus. This isn't some sort of sage who floats along the beach, and uh, he says, come follow me, and their arms go out, they close their eyes, and they walk like zombies. You know. they, they would have known this, this rabbi, this, this impressive teacher, who he was and what he was like. They may have grown up close to him. The point is, is when he comes to them, 
He comes to them and they are moved. And their hearts are melted. They go, me? No, no, surely you mean the other guys. They're, they're more impressive. Their fishing business is better. They've done a better job of life. Me? Jesus in his mercy moves towards you and towards me. And he says, yes, just as you are. No pedigree, nothing impressive. And he makes this invitation. And I want to focus most of my attention on that invitation where he says, come, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. I'm going to make you into people who are going to love other people. Isn't that awesome also in his grace? That actually Jesus doesn't come to them and say, hey, you guys are fishermen. I'm going to turn you into hunters. It's pretty cool. We often look at Jesus and, and, and we think, if I follow Jesus wholeheartedly, he's going to send me to a country I don't want to live in. He's going to make me do things I don't want to do. But in his beautiful, tender wisdom, he comes to them and he says, hey, I'm going to teach you, accountant, to do accounts in a way that's going to change the world because I'm going to teach you to love people while you do it. Hey, hey, teacher, I'm going to teach you not just to teach children how to understand math. I'm going to teach you to love people in a way that's going to change the world. He takes what they love and he says, don't worry what you love. I'm going to infuse into you in such a deep way that the world around you will be different because of it. Some of us are a little afraid. We think, if I say yes, then what? If you say yes, he will infuse your life with a meaning you could never imagine. He gets them and he gets you. He gets them. Now, I want to try my best to pull together a few other invitations that Jesus makes. Because he, he doesn't just make this invitation. Hey, come follow me. Two other very memorable uh, invitations in the, the Gospels does Jesus make. And I want to read them out to you because they almost make you feel like Jesus has uh, good, bad, good days and bad days. And that maybe he's a little bit um, uncertain of his personality. Listen to me. And I'll read it. Mark chapter 11. I beg your pardon. I think it's Matthew chapter 11. My notes are wrong here. Come to me, all you who are weary. Notice the invitation. Come. This is another invitation Jesus makes. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. This is another invitation Jesus makes. And he says, come to me. But, but this is a very pleasant one, right? This is like, come, let's, let's eat meals together. Let's have lots of ice cream. Let's, en, let's enjoy the sweetness of life. It's all about this, this comfort that he wants to bring to a complicated world. It's like the overlap of the ages. Man, this is good. The kingdom's come. I need this comforting, this comforter. It's going to give me rest for my soul. He's humble. He's gentle. The last thing I need is a horrible, harsh leader. Hey, contrast it with the next one. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. Wow. You, did, did he wake up on the wrong side of the bed that day? And he looks at them and he goes, you want to you enjoy life? Well, you're not going to. You're going to lose your life if you want to find it. And he's got this like deep intensity about the way he's teaching. By the way, both of these are Matthew, not Mark. If, if you're looking through your Bibles, you're in the wrong one if you're in Mark. The, both of these. But, but, but just to clarify, this is a, an interesting tension, right? One, he's high challenge. The other, he's high comfort. Is this the same Jesus? The answer is very much yes. This is the same Jesus who comes on one day and says, if you want to gain your life, you're going to have to lose it. And then he says also, if you want to come to me, I'll give you rest for your soul. 
because I'm gentle and, and I'm humble and I'm exactly what your soul needs. Can those two things live together? High challenge and high comfort and reward. Can they mutually exist in the same space? I want to suggest to you, absolutely yes. I want to suggest to you that actually we all believe it before we hear it. That so many of us have examples in our own life. I have one at the moment. Somewhere I have been convinced that to go run a half marathon is going to be a really good idea. Somewhere, I don't know what happened. It's this thing, this trend over the last six or seven years that to run marathons is going to be fun, or at least half marathons. And it's going to be rewarding. But you wake up in the dark and you run, and I did it on Thursday out at a camp, and I was in front of and I'm running in the dark, and it was load shedding, and I'm bumping into stuff, and I'm falling in holes, and I'm wondering, is this worth it? But somewhere deep down, you believe that a high challenge, high cost, is going to come with high reward. We believe it. It may be true in a whole bunch of other ways. Maybe it's dieting. I mean, who likes dieting? We hate dieting, right? It's the worst thing ever. But we all do it. Because the high challenge is going to bring about some sort of high reward. We believe it's good for us in some random way. Careers. We choose high challenge careers. We, we choose to put up with bosses that we, 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 we just don't really enjoy or, or colleagues that are high challenge. Because we, we believe that some reward, some sense of salvation for our souls, something is going to bring meaning. Even if it's just the finances, we're trusting something is going to bring meaning, even though it costs us a lot. Careers, children, by the way, children are a high challenge. Children, some people, when their marriages are struggling, are going through a tough time, they think to have another kid is going to be the thing that's going to save them. It's a common theme, by the way. You might laugh and go, really? Really? It really happens. And people believe that a new high challenge is going to bring about some sort of high reward and it's going to fix the issues. It's going to change the way things are. It's going to be a kind of healing balm, a salvation to us. Some people use marriage. Everyone knows marriage is tricky and challenging. Some people, when their dating relationship's not going great, or even when they're single and feeling like, I just need a change, something to fix the problems, they believe a high challenge marriage is going to be the thing. We've got that notion in our minds. The point I'm trying to make is not whether these things are good or bad. The point I'm trying to make is simply this, is that we all believe that somewhere deep down in, in who we are, high challenge is what actually can cause human flourishing. And Jesus gets it too. Which is why these two verses of following him are not actually in opposition with one another. They could actually be in partnership with one another. They could actually be working together in a profound and beautiful way. Actually, the good life could come when we take up high challenge and experience a sense of really high reward. Listening to Frederick Dale Brunner. It's a fairly long quote, but, but, but listen carefully. A yoke is a work instrument. Remember, Jesus said, take my yoke upon me. Uh, the yoke was his lifestyle, his teaching. The, to follow Jesus was to put this yoke. A yoke was a, represented a, fair, a, a kind of teacher's teaching and his way of life. And uh, a, a yoke was actually put on an oxen, you know, and it keeps the oxen going in the same direction. But, but in that culture, it spoke of embodying the life and the lifestyle of the rabbi. And so the, uh, Bruno says this. A yoke is a work instrument. Thus, when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think 
tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. I hope you're laughing right now. That's so insightful and true. But Jesus realizes that the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life, a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that life is a succession of burdens. We cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means that obedience to his Sermon on the Mount, which is his yoke, his teaching, will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. There's an emotional and even spiritual weight to life. We all feel it, especially as we age. An easy life is a myth, if not a red herring. The byproduct of an advertising-drenched and social media-duped culture. Life is hard. Full stop. No comma. No but. No end note. Isn't that interesting? I think somewhere deep down we want to avoid the notion life is hard. And find a silver bullet that's going to fix it all. And Jesus doesn't actually allow that. He says, come follow me because life is hard. It's immensely difficult. And he doesn't say, I've got a silver bullet. The only silver bullet, the only quick fix is a long walk in the same direction right next to me, says Jesus. Come follow me. And as you follow me, it will feel like it's costing you your whole life. But at the same time, it's going to feel like you're getting your life back all at the same time. It may feel like you're dying in a moment, but actually you're taking on the light yoke and the easy burden. That can happen. That's what Jesus is saying. When he comes to his disciples, he says, come, follow me. Yes, it's going to cost you so much. Yes, I'm going to change you. But let me tell you this. There's only one worse way to live in this hard and difficult world. And that's without me. That's without me. And that's by not taking my yoke upon you. If you really want to struggle in a difficult world, ignore Jesus, ignore his teachings, and go your own way. Then you'll die a million deaths before you die because you don't have the equipment that the king of this creation is giving to help us live in his created and complicated world. Wow, this is really good. This is really, really good. It is costly. David Platt, um, he says it a little like this. Where is it? I'll quote it just now. It's costly. It's costly. It's not easy to follow Jesus. There, there comes a, a level of challenge and cost to it. David Platt says this, Churches are filled with people who seem content to have casual association with Christ and give nominal adherence to Christianity. Scores of men, women, and children have been told that becoming a follower of Jesus simply involves acknowledging certain facts or just saying certain words. But this is not true. Disciples like Peter, Andrew, James, and John Show us that the call to follow Jesus is not simply an invitation to pray a prayer. It's a summons to lose our lives. Oh, you didn't come to church to hear that, eh? <laughs> but the wonder is that Jesus says, if you want to gain your life, you're going to lose it. And what's wonderful about the story we read in Mark is that he walks along the beach and he says to these guys, come follow me. It's going to be the adventure of a lifetime. It's going to feel numerous times like you're dying to yourself but you're also going to experience the lightest yoke 
and the easiest burden you could ever imagine. I want to try just take some examples of the teachings of Jesus that we can see the light yoke and the, the easy burden coming into play and the cost of not following Jesus. So let's, for example, think of forgiveness. Jesus' yoke, his teaching says that his disciples, they, they were a very complex bunch of guys. You had tax collectors and fishermen all in the same group. You know, you had uh, really differing types of people in one group, and they would have got really annoyed with each other. You stick 12 uh, men together for a long time, and there's going to be frustration, right? It's like watching Survivor. These guys would have had their challenges, and now... They ask Jesus, what about this thing of forgiveness? You know, must we forgive seven times? He says, no, you forgive 70 times seven. Fishermen probably couldn't do the math. They're like, that sounds like a lot. That's like, really, that sounds like more than I can count. So so yes, okay, you're trying to say we must forgive and keep forgiving. Yes, says Jesus. That's a tough yoke. That's a tough burden, isn't it? That's difficult. That feels like a death to self. I mean, come on. Forgiving is difficult. We have been hurt. How in the world do you or I forgive someone who's done some of the things they've done to us? We've got people we find easy to forgive, but there's always one or two. That thing I can't. Jesus says, forgive. Forgive as as I've forgiven. Now, why would that be a light burden and an easy yoke? Because it's harder to live in unforgiveness. Unforgiveness will eat you up and cause you to die a thousand deaths before you die, whereas forgiveness will cause you a little pain in a short amount of time, and yet you'll have a lifetime of lightness upon your life. There'll be a lifetime of an easy burden and a light yoke if you learn to forgive like Jesus forgives. It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm trying to help you to see that a short amount of cost could cause you a great amount of lightness and joy. Hey, I don't want you living in unforgiveness, but I want you to follow Jesus into his grace to understand the joy of forgiveness. What about confession of sin? Hey, Jesus so often teaches this wonderful thing of forgive us our sins as we forgive others. It's a deep self-awareness or the teachings, confess your sins to one another, come from Jesus' disciples. This is a difficult one. Our generation really are absolutely shocking. The concept of, of confessing our sins, we basically don't believe we're sinners a lot of the time. The Western mentality is, you believe in you. You're actually perfect. You don't make mistakes. Jesus says, nah, that burden's too heavy to bear. Who in their right mind believes they are perfect and don't make mistakes? Who in their right mind looks inside their heart and says, I can just believe in me and I've got everything I need? Really? What a big load of hogwash. Don't believe in you. Believe in Jesus and his, put his yoke upon you, which says, learn to confess your sins. Learn to ask for forgiveness. Why? Because in so doing, in saying, oh my gosh, I'm not as kind to my wife as I wish I was. I'm a little short and, and a little harsh, and I say stuff I wish I didn't say. If I don't confess, you know what happens? Is I become self-deluded. I start to believe that she's the problem and that she keeps not listening to the way things are meant to be. A lack of confession of sin is basically to delude yourself that you're something that you're not and your feet start lifting off the ground and you're no longer a human with your feet on the ground. It's a dangerous, dangerous place to find yourself. And it's really, really something that we need to give ourselves to and and, and to consider because none of us want to be found 
in a kind of self-delusion. Healthy self-awareness is to confess your sins, to go, my goodness, I've got some stuff going on that's not great. But because of the grace of God, he knew it anyway. He walked towards those fishermen, and he knew that they had so many mess-ups. He knew the one who was struggling with porn. He knew the one that was dealing with tax in a way that wasn't honest. He knew the one that wasn't treating his wife right. He knew the one that was just longing to be like someone else and just could never get there, whose heart was spinning out of control with envy and jealousy. He knew all of them, and he still moved towards them and said, come, follow me. I'll help you. My burden is light. It's easy. My yoke is easy. Just learn to confess your sins, and you'll start to realize that I'm kind even when you confess your sins, and you're going to get a healthy self-awareness that's going to help you to put your shoulders back and to love people even though you're not perfect because I love imperfect people, and I walk with them, and I help them because I care about them. Hey, that's a teaching. It's a yoke. We confess our sins. We're meant to do it alone just before God. We're meant to do it with others. Sometimes we go, hey, guys, I just need some prayer. I've not been kind to my wife. Help me. Hey, I need some prayer. I've been struggling. I'm distracted by all kinds of things, and I need to be focused on the things of God. Help me. What about generosity? Another yoke. It, it, this, one is, this one's really challenging. Acts chapter 20, 35, the, quoting Jesus' teaching. It's more blessed to give than to receive. No, 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 no. You got that wrong, Jesus. It's definitely more blessed to get than to give. Right? You know, the honest guys are like, yeah, it's nicer to get than to give. The rest of you are like, I don't know what to answer there. It is a tough one, right? Is Jesus right or is he wrong? Is it more blessed to give? Blessed is the word for happy. Is the happier life giving or getting? Either we believe it or we don't. Don't argue with me, by the way. Argue with Jesus. He's the one who says, you will be happier if you learn to give than if you learn to get all the time. And he says it because he understands the human propensity to want to accumulate more and more and more. And although we think we're getting to own more and more, the stuff we own begins to own us. And our lives begin to be dictated to by the stuff we own and want. And we get told, and we think we've got it all, we think we own it, but it owns us. And Jesus' teaching is that is a way heavier burden to bear. That is way more tiring, and that will take you down way harder than learning to be generous and giving stuff away, than learning to, to give. Uh, Nick spoke about the first fruits, to, to learn to actually say, hey, the first fruit of my income, I, I give because I believe in this mission. I believe that it's actually serving me, getting a light burden. I hear the word of God. I, I build community with other people. And, and that friendships, those friendships are actually helping generate a, a source of life for me that is actually helping this light burden of Jesus become more real for me. I'm generous because I understand that it is serving a whole new kingdom ecosystem that is changing the world. Or we just don't believe it. But then argue with Jesus. I would suggest that you're taking on a heavy burden if generosity is not your thing. What about distraction, busyness, hustle, hurry, all the stuff we've got to do? We've got to be somewhere, Rog. I can see we've got communion coming up, and we normally finish at 10 to. What's happening? We've got a thing to do. We've got to get to stuff, places. What's going on? Jesus says, hey, come away with me. Let's go to a quiet place. But Jesus, there's people all over. They, they need you. We've got tomorrow. We've got tomorrow. 
the hustle and the hurry, the need to be places, checking notifications all the time, buzzers all over the show, screens everywhere, telling us what to do and what to value and what to like and what not to like and how to live. Jesus says, come away with me. It's more burdensome to be driven by a busy, high-paced life where internal spinning is the dominant feeling of our lives. Jesus says, be careful. That's a much heavier burden to bear than coming away with me once a day, being quiet, reading the scriptures, hey, letting the scriptures read me, maybe confessing my sins, praying some prayers of worship and enjoying him, letting that feeling of maybe just experiencing what it would be like that Jesus walks on the beach and he says, come follow me. I know, I know you don't have it all right. Don't worry. We'll get there. Just walk with me. Let's, let's, just, let's just learn what it's like. And, and we take our first step. We take our next step. And he says, it's, it's better. It's better to do a day having had some time with Jesus than to have filled up your calendar with stuff you think is valuable, but you haven't been away with him. Come away with me, says Jesus. Let's go to a quiet place and rest for a while. When last did you rest for a while in the presence of Jesus? Wow, that's an easier yoke. 20 years' time, you're not going to look back at having been to every meeting, checked every Facebook notification, checked all your Instagram stuff, and made sure you got the likes that you wanted. And you look back and you didn't have a daily time of just coming away with Jesus. Your soul might not feel it in a day, probably will feel it in a week, but in two decades, you'll be a different human being if you just each day went away with him and let him slow down your soul to the pace that he's going at. This truth-telling, Jesus says, let your yes be yes and your no be no. This sounds so easy. I mean, truth-telling for most of us is pretty straightforward, right? I, I thought so. I thought it was pretty straightforward until I was telling a story to a buddy the other day, and uh, that was such a stupid example. I, I, I was telling him about how I was watching a guy walking his dog, and, uh, and somehow I said I kept on seeing... This guy keeps on running with his dog, and I tried to add a bit of humor, because what really happened is this guy's running with his dog, and it gets hooked around a light pole. So I told the story, but I just had to embellish because it just wasn't that funny. So I said, and it just kept on happening. But I was driving so fast that it only happened once, but I said it kept on happening because it, he just like stared at me ordinarily for the first part of the story, so I thought, let's embellish. It kept on happening. Oh, wow, that guy's dog kept on getting stuck on the leash around the poles, and I just told something that I found myself, I like, walked away going, what was going on there? Why did I need to squeeze that story for all it's worth to the point that it wasn't true? Because I never got a laugh that I wanted. I never got that like, yeah, cool, man. You, we should be mates because your stories are great. <laughs> I don't know. That's a dumb example. But sometimes we like that, hey? We just want to squeeze it just to make it seem a little better. We just, we, we've grown up five-year-olds telling about how much better our dad's cars are than each other's. It, it, it eventually becomes a heavy burden. The more you need to twist the truth, the more you need to upkeep that, that thing that need to be liked because you've, you've squished it, you've changed it. Maybe it's a financial mistruth. Maybe it's a relational mistruth. Whatever it is, the point is, is you've told some sort of lie that now you need to maintain up to that standard and it is a burden, says Jesus, that is going to kill you. Rather die to self and just say, sorry, bro, I told this story that wasn't true. <laughs> so dumb of me. I don't know what I was thinking and I, I, I just, I embellished. Really not great. Humble, but suddenly you've just got your shoulders back. The burden's light. He's gentle with me. 
There's no one. Jesus is more gentle with me than I am with me. He just says, just come follow me. Just receive my grace. I will keep on loving you. Hey, I'm going to skip the last one, insecurity. I think a lot of us are insecure. We want people to like us. Jesus just keeps affirming his love over us. He says, you are now my friends. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a friend of his. Stop chasing after the approval of others. Just love people and let, uh, and, and let them love you back. And if they're not perfect, don't worry, nor are you. But know that he is your friend. He calls you his friend. Jesus lands this thing and he says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is not about Jesus saying, follow me and I'm going to send you to a country you don't want to live in to tell people you don't know about Jesus. This is a story of Jesus saying, follow me and I will transform you into the kind of person who can't help wanting to tell people who don't yet know about him that they are missing out on the lightest burden that life could ever offer. The easiest yoke you could ever imagine. A teaching that is filled with a love that you never dreamt. Who knew life in this complicated overlap of ages could actually be lighter than we first thought? Who knew that that was possible? Jesus knows. Because he made you. And he made me. How do you and I follow Jesus? What makes us able? How do we get to him? We don't get to him. He comes to us. He comes to us. What makes me worthy that he would come to me? I wish you knew me. I wanted to say I wish you knew me 18, 20 years ago, but I wish you knew me now. I still wish you knew some of the thoughts I think and the feelings I feel and the pains and the, even sometimes the hatred that, that pops up. And I go, where did that come from? And I realize I've still got some formation. I've still got some change that needs to happen. Who's going to sort me out? Who's going to change this broken heart? Come to me. I will make you. I will change you. Follow me. My burden is easy. Yes, at times it's going to feel like you're dying a death you never thought you'd die. When you go to that guy and say, sorry, I embellished the story. Oh, but man, how much better than living with the burden of a thousand lies, self-deluded, pretending you're better than you are, that you've got it all together. We're going to move to the communion table, which is really the wondrous bringing together of these opposing worlds. Only Jesus can do that. Comfort and challenge, all in the same. Celebration and satisfaction with sacrifice. How do they all come together? How does the creator of the world bring broken people together with a holy and beautiful God? Well, he represents man before God, and he represents God before men. And he goes and he dies a death we should have died, and he rises again to prove that death no longer has its victory. Death is no longer the final say. Maybe today is your day to take communion for the first time. You're back to church after a long time or you haven't been for uh, ever and you're new to church. Hey, communion is an invitation to say yes to Jesus, to start the journey. It's, it's, not for, it's not for people who don't believe. It's for people who do believe. But maybe today is your day. You say, I do believe. And as you walk up, you, you crunch on that bread and you remind yourself that Jesus died a death once and for all so that the unrighteous could come and be made righteous. 
He could give us that gift. And you sip on that juice and you find yourself realizing his blood was shed so that I could live again. This is a magnificent thing. Hey, we bring together these amazing two things of comfort and challenge, sacrifice and satisfaction, feasting and fasting. I'm going to ask the band to come up. And I want to ask you, if you wouldn't mind just closing your eyes. I'd love us to do some some soul work with Jesus for a moment before we take communion. Paul writes and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup. After supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant for my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. In those words, Jesus, you bring to us comfort and challenge. You tell us that life is going to be tricky. It's going to be filled with complex things. But you also remind us that you will be our comfort and you will come back. Jesus, you promise us that you won't even drink of this cup until your return. You're holding out for that big feast Well, sometimes we fast and we feel like we don't get to feast. We know that you will return. And today this is a symbol of the feast that we get in the presence of such brokenness. Lord Jesus, as we take communion, we do it with real humility, with a tenderness. We don't want to come to the communion table arrogant, just taking for granted the death that you died for our sins. Why don't you take a moment to worship Jesus, to bring yourself before him, to to ask him to just forgive you if you need forgiveness, to thank him if you need to thank him for finding you like he found those disciples, for inviting you to follow him. Just say some words under your breath to Jesus. He's listening. Can I ask us, we're going to go to the tables and just to try to stay focused. You may want to greet someone. You may want to pray with someone as you take communion. But but to keep a level of reverence and focus towards this magnificent moment of honoring Jesus and thanking him for his invitation to follow him, for making us right with him. There's tables on the front and on both sides. Maybe you just want to go from the outside in and so we can just get a bit of flow. So walk on the outside, pick up the things and walk around the tables just so we get a bit of flow. And um, yeah, let's stay in this moment of worship and adoration for Jesus, but let's come to the front and get the elements. And then I'll lead us all together as we take them. Go for it. What do you want?
Don't you love being in a space where it's all new and takes a little longer than expected? We're learning. We'll get some tables at the back next time. Let's take these elements in our hands. Let's look at this wafer. Jesus, we are about to crush this wafer between our teeth and it's going to be a level of nourishment for our bodies, but it's a reminder that this is nourishment for our souls. This is grace that's come to us. It's the light burden. It's the easy yoke. It symbolizes that you were crushed on our behalf and yet you choose to move back to us so that we can enjoy following you, knowing where life really comes, knowing what the upside down kingdom is all about. We take this together, Lord. Jesus, this cup symbolizes your covenant that you've made, a covenant of love, a promise to be with us always to the very end of the age. As we take this cup, we remind ourselves that you are good and that you will never leave us nor forsake us. In our darkest times, you are our king and you are our friend. We thank you for that. We thank you for your blood shed on our behalf. We thank you that you're Royal robes are dipped in blood as a symbol that you are the eternal lamb that was slain for our good. And we will always celebrate the glory of what it means to know you and to live with you. Oh God, we can't wait for the kingdom to come. The full expression where this evil age has passed and we are with you forever. What glory awaits. We take this cup. Jesus, as we sing this final chorus, we do it with hearts full of wonder, longing for the comfort of the easy yoke, and willing to say yes to the challenges of some dying to ourselves that we might truly live. Oh God, this week will be filled with both. We go into this week knowing that you will be with us. As we sing, we say, we're doing this together. We're a family who needs our Savior, who needs our King. Let's stand, let's sing.